know that we have a younger son. His name is Aaron, and uh, he carries our last name, Boswell, obviously. Uh, he is a church planner in Winnipeg, Canada. He is uh, soon to be married to a young lady named Samantha sometime in April. Um, it is our privilege now to have our final, third, last child off, married, on his own. Praise God. We have reached that plateau in our life where they're all out of the nest, if you know what I mean. Because in my family, when you are married, financially, you're cut off. We had to teach that with our first to send a signal to the second and the third. Our daughter took that to heart. She got married a week after her graduation from college. Yeah. And, uh, but uh, it is our joy to, uh, to know and to, uh, to love little Samantha. We were there last summer. We saw a sparkle going on there, and we asked about that, and he, Aaron, quickly denied it. Uh, that was last July, and here it is just a couple of months later. They're engaged, and uh, it's just so sickening to watch young people in love, isn't it? <laughs> Holy cow. Puts the pressure on all of us men, doesn't it, guys? You know what I'm saying? And uh, anyway, it would be crazy for us to send everyone an invitation and, and expect those people that we want to invite, friends and family members, to travel all the way to Winnipeg, Canada, and to participate and join in the celebration and the wedding ceremony, wouldn't it? It'd be crazy. I, I think some of you would love to come, but, but it's just really too far, and the expectations would be too great, and the cost would be too great. And so what we've decided to do, rather than wedding invitations, we're going to sing, send wedding announcements. It's a little bit different than we normally do here in the States. They do things differently in Canada, too. We've found that out, which is okay. And uh, so we're going to send wedding announcements. Now, there's a difference between a, an invitation and an announcement, isn't there? An announcement is something that you're sending that is declaring or proclaiming or stating something that is taking place. And uh, there's not much anticipated, expected, or desired or demanded from those who receive an announcement. Although there is when you receive an invitation because the possibility is that you're going to accept that invitation and then you're going to feel somewhat compelled to attend, because after all, that's what an invitation is. It's an, an invite by someone to attend uh, an activity or festivity or a wedding. And so there's that difference between invitation and announcement. What we're going to see this morning in the text in Matthew chapter 11, Jesus is not making an announcement. He's making an invitation. It's an invitation that he has been making for quite some time since the beginning of his ministry after the baptism of John the Baptist. It's an invitation in which he's inviting people to recognize him for who he is. He is the Son of God. To receive him as the Son of God and to place their faith and trust in him as the Messiah and then to reflect a life change because of their identity with Jesus. That is the call, in essence, to discipleship. Jesus came as we have been studying already, to do what first? To redeem a lost world from sin and to recruit and to train disciples. And Jesus is issuing a call here to discipleship. And that's what he's trying to convey to those that are listening now to what we're going to be studying in just a few moments. Now, what we're going to be studying is basically a public prayer that Christ prays. He doesn't pray many public prayers. This is one that's recorded for us in Matthew chapter 11. And in this public prayer, he is basically not just communicating to the Father, but he's also communicating to those who are listening to the prayer. Now, don't act like you've never done that. 
Sometimes parents try to convey things to their children through their prayers. Right, parents? You've done this. Come on. Right? Uh, Have you ever heard a pastor, after preaching a message, then re-preach the message in his prayer? Because he may have forgotten a point that was very important that he needed to make in there. And so it was a lengthy prayer. Jesus is trying to convey in this very public prayer some important aspects in which, first of all, he's going to be thankful for the Father, for this very intimate love relationship that he and the Father have. And he's also going to give us some interesting theological aspects about this relationship and how we are then plucked for salvation and then grafted or given to Christ after our salvation. That's, that's really critical, but we're not going to take the time to study those two aspects. What we're going to look at this morning is the third point to this very public prayer in which Jesus is conveying now an invitation to those who are hearing the prayer to respond to him as through having recognized him for who he is so that they might receive him as their savior and reflect then a life change, a life of a disciple. So let's take a look at the passage in Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 25. I'm going to invite you to stand with me one more time. I know uh, that some of you are having a little bit of back issues because of the, the, the shoveling that you've done. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Uh, There's some good medication for that. It's called Tylenol, Advil, or Aleve, something like that. It always helps. And uh, so we need to kind of stretch a little bit. I don't want you to sit too long. Uh, You just look like you need to stand. But we want to honor God's word this morning and do that. So Matthew chapter 11, beginning with verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding, and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Here's the invitation. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Have you ever found that to be true? Hard to believe that his yoke is easy, and his burden is light. Let's talk about that for a little bit in just a few moments, but let's pray first. Father, thank you for the joy that's ours to stand in honor of your word And to together as a church family, a community of faith, we sought to honor you by standing and reading for your word. And God, I pray that as we now study the truths that are in this word, there's no way that we can ever exhaust the meaning and the impact and the applications of this text today. We don't have enough time. God, I pray that your spirit would then bring to uh, to those of us that are here through this text things that would be relevant and significant for us today. As you speak through your word and you speak through me, Lord, open my mouth and fill my heart and my thoughts with you so that we might together convey exactly what it is that you have purposed for this time together as we feast on your word. So, Lord, use it to glorify your son. Help build up now your kingdom through us through this word and help us now to go forth from this place to live it out in the lives that we live for you. 
Thank you for this time together in your word. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. If you take a look at the text in the narrative beginning with Matthew chapter 11, you see there's something interesting happening. John the Baptist has been imprisoned, and as a result of that imprisonment, he's a little bit shaky in regard to his earlier declaration that Jesus was the Messiah. And so he sends some of his disciples to Jesus to inquire of Christ. Now, some would convey or think the idea that John the Baptist is not not really trusting that Jesus is, that maybe he's doubting who Jesus is. I'm not so sure that's exactly the case. I think John the Baptist just wants a confirmation. He's in prison. He knows that his life has come to an end, and he wants to, to, to fully more understand and realize the culmination, the end of the ministry that God has given him and the direction that God is sending Jesus. I think he's wanting some confirmation. I think he's wanting some validation. And so he sends some of his disciples. If, if John didn't believe that Jesus wasn't the Messiah, why send disciples to Jesus? And so I'm convinced that he, he still believed that Jesus was the Messiah, but he needed a little bit more understanding, a little more insight. And the disciples in Christ have an exchange, and Jesus simply tells them, listen to my message and watch my works. And upon that, they then go back to John the Baptist and say, hey, you're not going to believe what he's preaching and teaching, and you're not going to believe what he's doing. And that was all the confirmation that John needed. It's interesting that following that inner exchange between Jesus and the disciples of John, that Jesus uses that as a platform then to speak to the crowd that's there. And he tells the crowd that's there that they have not been that receptive of the message that God had through the prophet John the Baptist. As a matter of fact, not only have they rejected John's message, but they have also been as unfavorable to his message as they were John's message. They've not received Christ's message at all. As a matter of fact, they've just not been open to it whatsoever. There's now beginning to be more resistance in the declarations and the claims, even the miracles of Christ. And so the ministry of Christ is beginning to take a little bit of of change in that regard. He came, first of all, with incredible authority and incredible power, and there's incredible following, and now there's a little bit of confusion in regard to that, and people are beginning to sort of distance themselves, especially the, the religious elitists, because of their desire to crucify him and to stop his influence. And uh, Jesus talks about this this rejection of Christ and and John's message, which is very similar, through a a little illustration in which he talks about child's play in the the street uh, plaza or maybe the street center of the town where children might get together and they role play about a wedding or they role play about a funeral. And the adults around are, are too wise and too understanding to stoop themselves down to this level of child's play. And so they've discounted, because of the hardness of their hearts, this message of repentance and reconciliation that John and Jesus are proclaiming. They're just too wise, too, too filled with understanding, and they're not going to stoop. I mean, that's, that's for little children to do that. And didn't Jesus say that we needed to come to him how? As a child. And so because of their resistance and rejection, it's interesting that Christ now begins to address the people, not just the religious elite, because they have rejected him. And he's saying to them, Because of what you have done in rejecting my message and me as the Messiah, you stand condemned already. And at the end, judgment will fall. 
it, it's, a, it's an incredible prophetic utterance from the mouth and the words and the life of Jesus amongst this crowd. He begins then to identify certain towns in which they have seen these incredible, miraculous things that Christ has done for the purpose of revealing his identity so that they then would receive his message and trust him as their Messiah. But they have rejected, in spite of what they have witnessed, in spite of what they've heard, they said no to him. And so condemnation is going to come. And Jesus is very quick to say to them, at the end times, you guys... You're not going to make it. You stand condemned already because of your refusal and rejection. And he uses these cities as a model, an illustration of the nation of Israel. Because soon after this, Jesus is going to begin his death march to the cross in which he's going to become the sacrificial lamb. And Israel obviously is going to reject him. They're going to crucify him and they're not going to receive him. And so there's a transition here. And because of this, this message that Jesus has spoken to, he then begins to address the crowd in a very public prayer. Now, this is unprecedented. And we have a record of this public prayer. And as I've said, there are several aspects about the prayer that are very interesting and very, very important for us to study. The, the thanksgiving and the, the, the blessing that, that Jesus describes between him and the Father in the first two verses of that prayer are huge. They're very significant. They're worth our time and our effort, but we don't have time for that today. The, the huge theological concept of, of this whole this whole ordained, sovereign, planned purpose of God in selecting us and saving us and giving us to Christ is a huge theological perspective and worthy of attention and study at some point. But we don't have time for that today. But we go to the third point in this prayer, the third aspect, in which we see now Jesus is issuing an invitation. It's not a proclamation. It's not a declaration. But in the prayer, it's an invitation. And there are many people who have used this passage as an attempt to find comfort during difficult times. And, and, and it is certainly that. But even though it may convey comfort and strength and peace in very difficult times, this passage is very much an invitation to a group of people who have rejected Jesus. And first of all, we see that it is a call to salvation. It's not a call to comfort. It's a call to salvation. And many miss this important truth in the context of what I've described. Take a look at verse 28. We see then the invitation begins with a call from Christ to trust him as their savior. He says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. There's a prerequisite in this invitation. He says, come. The prerequisite is discovered in this text through the one word, come. That simply means turn from the direction that you're heading and turn to me. What is the R word that that sounds like in salvation? Repentance. In other words, he's saying to the crowd, you've rejected me and refused me. Why? Because you're going this legalistic, self-righteous way, and you're believing that that's the way to salvation, and it's not. You need to recognize your mistake, repent of that, and trust in me as your Savior to repent. Without repentance, there is no salvation. Without repentance, there can be no salvation. Simply saying a simple prayer without this act of turning from self and sin to Christ, there can be and will not be salvation. You can't say a quick prayer and they'll still continue to trust your works or your own righteousness. 
You must turn from that and turn to Christ and trust him. The, the concept is to turn, to repent. Notice, to come to whom? Who's the provision? Jesus. You see, he says, turn from your own self-righteousness and turn to me. We have been called to the person of Christ, not to a church, not to religion, not to denomination, not to a convention. We have been called to the person of Jesus. It is an intimate love relationship in which we are turning from our own self-righteousness and we're trusting in the righteousness of Jesus to provide the, the sufficiency that we lack in order to gain acceptance and approval and eternal salvation from our sin that damns us. From a right relationship from the Father. He says, come to me. Who? Those who have a problem. What's the problem? The problem is they're all who labor and are heavy laden. They're, they're not in labor. You get the, get the pun? They're not in labor. But they are in labor. Why are they in labor? Because, you see, they're experiencing incredible hardship. They're in labor. They're weary. They're worried. They're preoccupied. Because in spite of all of their effort, they don't have any peace. You see, they're under this yoke called the Torah. And all of these man-made regulations. And all of that has been dumped upon them by man. And they know these rules and these regulations and these traditions and in spite of their best effort they know that they don't measure up and yet they're putting their faith in their own righteousness their own measuring stick and they're hoping they're hoping that what they have done is sufficient but they know in their head and in their heart and by the guy who stands every Sunday and every Saturday and proclaims them they know that they're not enough and yet they're hoping but he said, hey, you're, you're under this burden. You, you, the, the problem that you have is you're relying on your own self-righteousness and it's weighing you down. And he says, come to me, all who recognize the problem. And notice what he promises. I will give you rest. I'll give you rest. I'll give you peace. In other words, what he's saying is, I'll take all that work ethic that you're putting into it, which is insufficient, and I'll do a work that is sufficient. Did you, did you get that? All of your work that you're doing that you know is not going to make it, it's not going to make you right with God, not going to help you find favor with God, not going to give you the eternal security, that work is but I'm going to do a work that is completely and totally sufficient in that will meet all the demands of the Father and you just put your trust in me. You'll not have to work anymore. He says all of your weariness in trying to, to work and, and all of that struggle, you, you could now find rest. He said all of that worry, I mean imagine this. You know you don't measure up to the measuring stick of perfection and now you're sleeping at night wondering if I wake if I die before I wake, will my soul the Father take? He won't. Why? Because I'm not righteous enough. I did this today and that today and didn't do that and didn't do that. And, and I'm not right. And, and because I know I'm worried about my eternal destiny. They were, they were burdened down with this. And, and they were weak in their own effort to overcome Satan and sin and, and their own carnality. It wasn't working. And now Jesus, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. 
I can remember on a Sunday night, my father was the pastor of a small church. We had just relocated to a new community and a new facility. And, and I remember when the invitation was given, holding on to the chair in front of me, not wanting to go forward. But for some unexplained reason, I let go. And before I knew it, I was standing right here. I don't know how I got there. And I looked up and told my dad, who was the pastor, I want to trust Jesus as my Savior and Lord. I've been asking a lot of questions. We've been doing a lot of dialogue, a lot of discussion. And it was finally time. And I remember having prayed that prayer and at the end turning around and being faced with the congregation. I felt free. I mean, even as a child, I felt the burden and the heaviness of my sin. And then when I placed my faith and trust in Christ, it was gone, man, and I thought I could fly. And I think I've told you this before. My mom was sitting there right about where Cindy's sitting, and she was, and I couldn't figure out why is she crying when I feel so great. I didn't know what tears of joy were about. I knew about tears of pain from spankings. But I was free. Jesus says, come to me all who labor and are heavy laden and I will give you rest and peace, a worry-free, no longer weak, impotent life, but now in me you'll have blessing and power and freedom and victory and assurance that if you die, and we all will, unless he returns, that we'll be together with him in the clouds and we'll be forever with the Lord. That's what he's saying here. It's a call to put our trust in him. And I think that's a call that most of us need from time to time in our journey, in our struggle as disciples, because quite frankly, I think most of us in our journey, in our, in our struggle, we, we somehow manage to find our way back to the old life, don't we? And, and we use measuring sticks and rules and regulations and criticisms and cynicisms and all those to those that aren't living the kind of life that we're living. Oh, we may not say it quite like that, but we can become really pious and filled with our own self-righteousness and forget that our, in our own depravity, no matter how well we live and how right we might think we are, it's all in him and about him and because of him, isn't it? It's a call here we see to trust. That's where it begins. But it doesn't stop there. You see, discipleship doesn't just begin with a call. There's more to it. And I think there are many in their explanation of what it means to become a fully devoted Christ follower and becoming a disciple of Jesus. Forget that it's more than just a simple prayer and you're, you're, you're dunked in some water and then declared to be a Christ follower. There's more to it than that. There is an aspect about it in which Jesus is calling those who are disciples to follow him. And in following him, he gives them a command. Notice, he says to those who are his disciples, take my yoke upon you. I don't know about you, but I don't like that part. We live in an entitlement society, and, and I become kind of entitled myself. I want freedom and liberty and 
to do what I want to do and to go where I want to go and everybody else is to get out of my way and to, to abide by to my, my wishes. And yet Jesus says, hey, you want to follow me? It's a life of service in which you are to take my yoke upon you. What does that mean, take my yoke? What is a yoke? I don't have to explain it to you. I think most of us have been in Sunday school long enough that we know, but let me just quickly just mention what it is. It's a yoke. It's a piece of wood, possibly. They went over to the, the, the front shoulder blades of an ox or a, 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 an animal, and, and as a result of that, it was attached probably to, a, to either a wagon or maybe to a plow or something that the farmer or the, the merchant would use in which that animal was expected by its master to carry the full brunt or the weight of the load in which the master placed upon it. It was a yoke. It was something the master designed. It was something the master desired for this beast that belonged to him to carry you get the analogy here? And Jesus is commanding his disciples now, after placing their faith and trust in him, take my yoke upon you. Now, does that sound like a good recruitment for those who wish to follow Jesus? Hey, come to this salvation thing. But by the way, when you step forward and, and you trust Christ as your Savior, you're going to have to take up a yoke. You're going to have a master it's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard. It's going to be difficult to take up the yoke. The word take simply means to me there has to be a receptivity upon the part of the oxen. I mean, I can imagine from time to time the, the, the wild beast probably said, I don't want to carry that. And the master would do what? Would probably whip it until it submitted. And so it has an idea to me that there's a, an aspect of us who are disciples that we must submit to the yoke that Christ wants to place on us. He says, take it up. There's an act of our volition. There's an act of the will, isn't there? I don't have to take it, but he commands me to take it. I really, as a disciple, don't have much of a choice, although I do have a choice. And there are times I may decide, you know, that's not what I want. Thank you very much, Jesus. I'm not interested in that. And the discipline for that is more severe than had I said yes. Because there's always a high price when I say no. And the burden is always heavier when I don't than when I do. Take. Whose yoke is it? Take my yoke. We've already defined yoke. What's the definition of my? It's his. Christ is saying to us, take my yoke. It's not yours. It's not mine. It's not someone else's that they're trying to place on us because that's what was going on. These people, the Torah, as I've mentioned, as you were taking on the Torah, it was often described as a yoke, the yoke of the Torah, the burden of the Torah. And he's saying, no, take that, that off of you and put my yoke upon you. I want you not only to be receptive of it, but I want you to recognize that this is mine. It's not some man-made thing. It is my thing, it is a God thing. The fact that God does say that it's his and that, that what we are to carry belongs to him, much like when the oxen was, was strapped with that yoke and he carried the merchandise or he worked in the field. To whom did that merchandise belong? To the oxen or to the master? To the master. But he was doing all the work but it belonged to the master. Do you see the analogy? 
I mean, the yoke that we are carrying comes from him, and and the yoke that we carry belongs to him. It is his. It is not ours. We are simply the recipients of it and the, the carriers of what belongs to someone else. But we often like to take credit or possession of something that doesn't belong to us at all. Just ask somebody out in the hall, how you feeling today? And they tell you how they're feeling. And it's all about me and my and us. Well, you know what? The Lord's really put this burden on my eye. This is the Lord's yoke. We never hardly ever reference it as his, do we? It's ours. But if we're his disciples, it's not ours. Unless it's consequence to sin. That is, I think, a load sometimes that is responsible to us because of disobedience. There's a recognition here, but there's a responsibility here too. And the responsibility is take my yoke upon you. We are to carry the burden. There's a, an aspect of toil and work. There's a work ethic here. The, the oxen was expected to work. He was bought by the master to work. He was fed by the master to work. He was harnessed to work. He didn't have an option but to work. There's an aspect of service here in which he expects us to serve. Now, the service that we do is in a service so that I can be accepted to God and I'm working on my righteousness and I can be, I, I can go, that's not it. We're over here. We already have all those things. But because we belong to him, there's a work ethic here in that we are to work. Keep thinking about that old song. We'll work till Jesus comes. We'll work till Jesus comes. You know the song? We'll work till Jesus comes and we'll be gathered home. How long do we work? You know what? I've never found a church that has more workers than than they do slots to fill. I've never been in a church in 35 years that has more workers and slots to fill. You see, the life that Christ has called us to is not a life to be served. It is a life of service. Some of you in here have multiple places of service. Some of us think that retirement is an option in the service of the king. And I'm here to tell you it's not. The only retirement party that you're going to have is when you die or Christ returns. Then you can retire. But until then, you are to work till Jesus comes. We are in a new covenant now. And in the new covenant, we now don't serve the old covenant, but we serve a new covenant with a new relationship. And his name is Jesus, and we serve him. But notice what he says then in the next part of the verse. If we are to serve him, we need to know him. There's a command to serve him, but a commitment now to know him and to know him more fully. It says in the text, and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. A commitment to know him. Learn, he says from me, learn. There's a devotion here on the part of the student that we become subjects of Christ himself and we're sitting in that great classroom in which we as disciples are studying Jesus and listening for him to communicate into our lives. Lord, I am your student. I am your disciple. I am open. I am humble. I am honest. I am willing. I am submissive. Teach me. Pour into me all of your wisdom and all of your understanding. Show me all of your ways. And yet we are a lot different than that. Lord, let me tell you my ways. Let me tell you what I think. Instead of learners, one of the interesting discussions when I submitted my dissertation when I was working on my doctorate is the 
I had a deal on discipleship and actually leadership, and we gave the the people that completed a little a little recognition that they completed the course of leadership and discipleship, and it was cool in this very limited discussion with these four other experts and me, I had to give an oral explanation. They started arguing among themselves, which is phenomenal for me, when does somebody get recognized as being a fully grown disciple? Because in my dissertation, it conveyed the idea that now you're a disciple because you've completed this course. Is there a course that says now you're a disciple? When does the classroom end? Never. Never. But sometimes we program Southern Baptists to think, I've done this, I've done this, I've done that, I've done that. Now I'm a disciple and I don't need to learn anymore. When do you stop learning? Your life as a disciple is a lifetime of learning. We never stop learning. I don't. And there are still truths and concepts and aspects and theological insights and things that I haven't yet even begun to discover. And neither have you. And I haven't begun to really learn the person of Christ. He said, learn from me. In what direction do I go to for learning? I go to Jesus. I go to Jesus. That's, That's the direction I go. I go to him. I study him. It's a relationship that he calls us to about him. We are in a relationship with the person of Christ Again, I say it's not about a denomination or a church or, or what this church believes or doesn't believe. It's about Jesus, and it's all about him. And I am studying him, learning about him, following him, listening to him. It's about him. And when I need to know something about my life, I say, Jesus, you teach me. Remember these people he's addressing are under a yoke? What yoke? The yoke of the law that was being pressed upon them? Where did that law come from? It didn't come from God. It came from what? It came from men. Didn't it? God had nothing to do with it. They sat in a little corner somewhere in the, in, a, in, in the temple somewhere, and they got together, and they made all these traditions and all these regulations and all these rules, and they dumped them on the people. That wasn't from God. That was from man, and they were being carrying a yoke that was made by man. And Jesus says, stop following man, and you come to me. Follow me. Learn from me, he says. And if you learn from him, You get to know him. And when you get to know him, what do you discover about him? I am gentle and lowly in heart. The closer I get to Jesus and the closer I get to the Father, the more I know he is gentle and lowly. He is kind. He is compassionate. He is considerate. You know, when people tell me, I don't deserve this. Why did this happen to me? Blah, 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 blah. They're telling me they don't know God. They're telling me they haven't been walking in a close, intimate love relationship with Jesus. Because when I'm walking close to Jesus, I don't question the yoke that he puts on me. I don't see him as a mean, vindictive, unfair, unkind God. And we have a tendency to think that. But what that simply does, it reveals that I don't know him. How can I walk through the valley of the shadow of death and fear no evil? Why? Because thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runs over. What? Even in the valley of the shadow of death, my cup is running over. 
How can that be? Because I know who he is. And he would never put any more on me than what I can't bear with him. And that doesn't bless him and build up his kingdom in me and his kingdom through me, regardless of whatever comes my way. And you will find rest for your souls. Notice the knowledge that comes from knowing that he's gentle and lowly. You're going to find rest for your soul. There's a dividend here of blessing. There's no more sadness, no more worry, no more heartache. There's nothing but joy and peace and fulfillment and contentment. Now, if someone were to ask you, do you know who your governor of Kansas is? Tell me, do you know who your governor is? What's his name? Brownback? Do you know him? How many would say, I know him? Anybody here know him? You really know him. You spent time with him. You gone fishing or hunting or camping. You sat at a table, had a meal in his kitchen. You know him? Or do you know him? Well, I know who he is, but do I really know him? You see, it's one thing to know Jesus, and it's another thing to know Jesus. And there are a lot of people who say, well, I know a lot of things about him, but do you know him? Do you walk in an intimate love relationship in which you're experiencing him on a daily basis to where no matter what comes into your life, circumstance, situation, yoke, trouble, trial, test, temptation, you are walking in complete rest because you know him. See, that's the difference that that makes. The reason why these people aren't receiving him is because they don't know him and they're not experiencing the rest that's available through him. For when you know him, there's a confidence that empowers us to stand. Notice the text in the confidence to stand in Christ. Verse 30, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Really, sometimes my yoke doesn't seem too easy. At least I don't think it's easy. You ought to walk in my shoes for a little while. Everybody ever told you that? Come live my life for a while. You'll see that it ain't that easy. Bad grammar, but it's true, you know. I don't have it easy. It's hard. Well, what he's saying here is that that with Christ, your yoke is easy, meaning that it is more desirable than the yoke that you used to wear. Now think about it. Let's make comparisons here. While you're thinking about your heavy load and the yoke that you have on you right now, while we're thinking about it, let's compare it to the yoke that you had before Christ and now the yoke that you have in Christ. What was it like before Christ? You were on your own. You were hopeless. You were weary. You were condemned, damned to hell. A yoke that wouldn't wouldn't give you peace or joy or fulfillment or contentment. You love, but you didn't love. You lived, but you weren't living. You were working, but you were getting nowhere. Your righteousness was not enough, and you, you were hopeless. But now, over here, the little circumstance you got and the circumstance you got or the situation in your life or the yoke that you have, let's compare the two. Which would you rather have? How many would rather have this one over here? Anybody here? 
I mean, look around. Anybody here say, I'd rather have that life? Or would you rather have this life? How many would rather have this life? Not too many in here. So when you start lamenting your yoke, and you start talking about how burdensome it is, and you need to come walk in my shoes for a little while, live my life, you need to see me. Just think about what it was before. And compared to what it is now, I don't care what happens now. It's a lot easier than what you had before. I said it's a lot easier than what you had before. I don't care how bad it gets. And when you compare it that way, you know what? It gets easier. Because though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I don't fear any evil. Why? Because thou art with me. Which brings us to this, and my burden is light. The word burden here is, it is in fact burden. It's a, it's a heaviness. But, but what we need to understand is when the yoke was placed upon the oxen or the, the wild beast or the animal, it was placed on two animals normally side by side. It was a double yoke. Why? Because two oxen could carry a heavy load. And they shared the burden. They shared the load in Christ. If we have his presence, who do we have connected with us on the load? Jesus. And now because he's with us, he lightens the load. I mean, imagine going through life without him. How heavy it would be. Now, granted, there are people who have him but don't acknowledge him, and they carry a heavy load. But two animals can carry a much heavier load than one. They can do harder work than just one. And we then, as he calls us to bear that yoke, we will find that it's easy and we will find that it's light because Jesus is with us. And when he's with us, all things become possible. For greater is he that is in me than he that is in the world. And he'll not place any more on you than what you and Christ can bear together. If you would just look to him and commune with him and walk with him and lean on him and live for him, you can't. Glorify him through. Move with him through as he works in you and builds you up to make you more like Christ so that together, together you can fulfill the work of his kingdom in you and through you. Let's pray. Thank you for joining us for this broadcast of Emmanuel Baptist Church. Emmanuel is located at 1415 South Topeka in Wichita, Kansas and is easily accessible from all parts of the city and surrounding areas. Every Sunday morning, Emmanuel offers two worship services. The first service begins at 9.30 a.m. and offers a contemporary worship setting in a casual and relaxed atmosphere. Our second worship service begins at 10.50 a.m. in our worship center and is led by the Emmanuel Choir and Orchestra. Both services are centered around strong biblical teaching where the Bible is presented in a clear and relevant way. Life groups for children and adults of all ages are provided at 9.30 a.m. and 10.50 a.m. For more information, please visit our website at www ibcwichita.com that's www.ibcwichita.com